This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. Each week I go through a ton of reading and research. Uh, and every week I take the five things I found most valuable during the previous week. I put them together in a Saturday morning email. If you're interested in receiving something like this, just go to thefelderreport.com. Right there on the homepage, click join now and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Rob Arnott. And uh, Rob's one of the most accomplished and well-respected quantitative analysts in the world. He's written over 100 academic papers on everything from tactical asset allocation to value investing. Uh, in this episode, Rob discusses his evolution as an investor from tailoring his college major in the late 1970s to best position him for a career in quantitative investing to the founding of his firm Research Affiliates in 2002. He also shares the details of his uniquely successful indexing strategy he developed over a decade ago to fix the major problems with the most popular forms of passive investing and to improve on their long-run performance. Um, it was really an honor for me to have Rob on the show, and I really hope you enjoy it. Ever wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. Sheep get slaughtered. Rob, welcome to the show. Happy to join you. I'm super excited to have you here. This is one I've wanted to do for a long time. I've been a fan of the fundamental indexes. I've written about them several times and uh, really glad to be able to pick your brain about these things. But first, before we get to anything, I need to ask you, I've read in a couple places that you are a solar eclipse chaser. Uh, tell, me, tell me about this hobby a little bit. Sure. Well, I was uh, when I was in high school, I was either going to go into investments or astrophysics. I wasn't sure which. And uh, so solar eclipses are my way of staying somewhat in touch with the astronomy and astrophysics community. And it is the most astonishing spectacle the sky has to offer when you see photographs of uh, total eclipse, it doesn't come close to the real thing. The real thing is just breathtaking. Yeah. You know, we had one, um, I, I'm here in Oregon and we had one, was it a couple of years ago, maybe I, and yeah. uh, I didn't actually go right to, I don't know, send, uh, over to the Valley to, to see it, but I stood on my roof with my kids and we watched, we got the glasses and it was, it was amazing. I mean, to, mm -hmm. to actually feel that and feel, you know, feel like the sun setting and getting cold and got dark and everything got quiet. It was, it was really, um, astounding. Um, so I, I can imagine, uh, you know, wanting to recreate that experience <laughs> over well, and over again is total eclipse is as different, um, uh, from a partial eclipse as uh, your first true love is from your first kiss. <laughs> yeah. It's massively different. So you still owe it to yourself to try one out. I think it's 2024. There's one that goes across from Texas, um, from Waco, Texas, up to Buffalo. And uh, so that's not too far to go. But I, I'll go anywhere in the world. I've gone to Antarctica. I've gone to... Um, uh, Egypt hard up against the um, uh, Libyan border. Uh, I've been to Turkey and you name it. So it's a wonderful excuse also to go to places that you'll never have an excuse to go to again. 
That's a good point. I mean, right? I, you know, you might not travel to a lot of those places otherwise. So yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, let's let's um, let's begin at the beginning with your your career. What really was it? You said it was either astrophysics or investing. What was it about investing that really appealed to you in the beginning? Uh, I was a math geek as a kid, and so whatever I did in life had to be mathematics oriented. Um, each summer I would commit the whole summer to read everything I could get my hands on, on a particular topic. So one summer it was astrophysics, another summer it was investing. And I just found investing fascinating. I was also, um, uh, very interested to observe that there was a lot of, um, uh, heuristics, rules of thumb and, um, uh, pseudoscience, used in investing. And I, I, I was thinking, gosh, you know, why don't people apply science to this? And uh, uh, when I was in high school, I went to a uh, summer science program focused on astrophysics and discovered to my horror that there were people out there who were way better at math than me. So do I go into astrophysics where I have the potential to be uh, a reasonably good astrophysicist, or do I go into finance where I would be in a much smaller uh, class of folks who actually know math? So ultimately, by the time I got out of college, I was uh, uh, convinced that um, quantitative investing, even though the term hadn't been coined yet, would be my, uh, my home. That, that's fascinating to me because, you know, the, the name of my podcast, I named it um, Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. It's a, it's a cross between, you know, the, uh, the article Buffett wrote about um, the successful value investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom was the speech that, you know, Charlie Munger gave, I think it was at USC, um, talking about bringing a multidisciplinary approach to whatever you do. So, um, you know, that's interesting to me that uh, for you, it was math and you saw it bringing a kind of a, a math and scientific approach to investing. Um, wh- so you graduated, was it UCSB in 1977? Was that right? Yep. Yep. And, uh, applied mathematics, computer science and economics. I designed the program specifically for this career. And so where did you... Um, so did you go work to work on Wall Street? I mean, straight away from from there, or I did. I did. I actually never went for advanced degrees, although I've probably written more articles than most professors. Um, I went to work for the Boston Company, which owned Boston Safe Deposit and Trust, uh, kind of a traditional trust management company that had an interest in exploring some uh, mathematical applications to investing. So what uh, got me interested in joining them was, uh, well, I sent about 500 letters and got about uh, uh, 15 job interviews and four offers. And um, this was the lowest paying offer. But they said, you want to do some research on your own. Um, why don't we pay you four-fifths of what you want and you can spend a day a week doing whatever you like? Fantastic. So I jumped at it. I uh, started to do research, started to publish articles. And uh, so I had the chance to build a reputation, which would have been very difficult at most asset managers because I wouldn't have had the time to do independent research. 
So I'm curious to, to just uh, follow up on you, you decided not to go get an MBA or anything like that. What, what was your reasoning for that? My reasoning was really simple. I, I wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to dive in and learn on the job. And of course, MBAs require on the job training anyway. Um, and I felt I'll get an advanced degree uh, if I find it's going to be useful. And ultimately, it's not that it wouldn't have been useful. It's that it wouldn't have been as useful as the additional years of hands-on experience. I've learned more on the job than I could possibly have learned in a PhD program. Yeah, you know, it, and it reminds me of, uh, you know, I, I mentioned Buffett a minute ago. Uh, I I, I kind of followed the same path and decided I, I didn't really want to go get an MBA. But what turned me off to it was I was, you know, was reading all the Buffett letters and he, he was very critical, you know, about uh, – you know uh, what what finance schools were teaching at the time in the efficient market hypothesis and whatnot, and you know, basically saying they teach you all the wrong <laughs> wrong things. And so I thought <laughs> I could probably get a better ed- education just reading up as much as on his methodology as I possibly could. Um, so from from the Boston company, um, what, what did you? I guess and through your own research, um, what did you? I mean, how did you? I guess develop. Uh, through that uh, towards, you know, or move towards founding research affiliates and and talk me through the progression there, I guess. Sure. Uh, Just a very quick progression. I was recruited at the ripe old age of 29 to be a chief investment officer at an LA based trust company, uh, uh, Trust Services of America, which was described in the LA times as a uh, sleepy little old trust company. And I was brought in to shake things up. Um, I built TSA Capital Management, which became analytic investors uh, some years later. Uh, I was recruited to be uh, a global equity strategist at Solomon Brothers, where I quickly learned I could state any strategy view that didn't disagree with Henry Kaufman on bonds or Bob Solomon on stocks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and so I was a fish out of water. It was uh, a fascinating experience. Um, uh, I was then recruited to First Quadrant, uh, where I built uh, my second asset management firm and uh, then decided in 2001 that I really needed to consider starting my own business. It's uh, building businesses for others is is fun, but as soon as you get big enough to matter on their bottom line, suddenly they start diving in and wasting endless time on uh, helping you manage your quarterly earnings. And (laughs) so I found the short-termism deeply frustrating. Uh, And so in 2004, uh, excuse me, 2002, I launched Research Affiliates, ran both businesses side by side, um, very carefully avoiding conflicts of interest. And um, then 2004, First Quadrant was uh, resuming some growth after the bear market, and Research Affiliates was on a roll, so it needed my full-time attention. I then uh, turned full attention to Research Affiliates. So it's it's been an adventure. Uh, every step of along the way, whether pleasant or unpleasant, was a fabulous learning experience. And uh, so it's um, uh, it's been a, a wonderful ride. 
Yeah, you know, and I have to take a step back and, and ask you about, you know, you said you were recruited um, to a lot of these other firms. Was it your research and what you were publishing? Is it? Do you think that was what really, um, uh, I guess, set you apart or, or kind of made you attractive to, to, to these other firms? I think that was a big factor. That was what put my name on the radar screen. And um, uh, the other, I, I, I suspect, was um, I communicate reasonably well with non-quants, um, and I have a deep and abiding curiosity in just about everything. And so uh, people found that to be uh, uh, interesting. Um, first quadrant was the last time I was recruited to a job. That was way back in 1988. Um and the only job change since then was 2004, um, leaving First Quadrant and devoting full time to research affiliates. So, it, it, like I said, it's been a fun ride. The, the first uh, decade of my career, there were a few changes. And like I said, they were all wonderful learning experiences. Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, ability to communicate is probably a, a really underrated quality. Um, you look at, you know, why, you know, to, to come back to Buffett, uh, why he's so revered, you know, his ability to communicate through his letters, um, your ability to communicate through the research papers, you know, some pretty arcane concepts uh, is also um, something I think, you know, I, 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 and the reason I'm focusing on this, I get asked a lot uh, about by younger people, how should I get it? How can I get into finance and, and what can set me apart? And so, you know, that that's really where that question is coming from. I think that not only having, you know, being passionate and, and talented in an area, but being able to communicate that is, is really valuable also. So you said um, wanting to start your own firm is really what inspired you to found research affiliates. Um, that was 2002. Yep. Was was there something specific, like uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, the the uh, the the product offering or something that, that you weren't able to do with the other firms that that was really said, okay, I, I really need to go out on my own to be able to accomplish what I want to do. Yeah, of course there was. Um, uh, First Quadrant was owned by a group called Affiliated Managers Group that. Um, uh, their typical model is uh, to take a share of revenues. When we had a business downturn, uh, they simply dictated that we must pay them their dividend, even if our even if it used all of our profits and all of our bonus pool. Um, so it wasn't sharing in the profits; it was sharing in the revenues. And no, not faulting them for this because that's a business model that's great for cash cows. And it's terrible for firms that want to innovate. Um, when I wanted to innovate and launch new products, the response basically was, please do. It's great. And as soon as they're delivering revenues, uh, we'll take our share. And, of course, they deliver revenues for years before they reach break even. So, really, it becomes a negative IRR to launch new product. Um, it it's like I said, it's a great business model for cash cows. Uh, it's a business model that I think doesn't work for companies that want to continue to innovate. Hmm. Um, well, from what I've read, you know, through, I mean, you do publish a ton and it's, it's, I think it's fantastic for curious uh, investors who want to learn more about, uh, about, you know, investing in the markets. Um, 
research affiliates seems to have a deep respect for value, the concept of mean reversion, um, things that are, are distinctly out of favor <laughs> or, or <laughs> concepts that have been Probably lost by the, <laughs> lost by the majority of investors uh, over the past decade. Where for, for you, where does this where do these uh, where did you first learn about these things? Where does this kind of, I guess, appreciation for these things come from? Well, let's just suppose you want to you want to buy a corner convenience store. Um, are you going to pay an unknown amount for it or are you going to have a, a threshold at which you're going to say, well, this is too risky to be worth that much money? Um, of course, there's a price. There's a sensible price, there's a cheap price, and there's a too high price. Well, what's the difference? When you're looking at stocks, you're looking at businesses. When you're looking at bonds, you're looking at um, reliable income streams with a certain quantifiable default risk. Uh, It's no different from buying the corner shop. And so value does matter. There's no question that value matters. That doesn't necessarily mean that all stocks should have the same P.E. ratio, not by a long shot. But there is a value for every business at which it's sensibly priced. And there's a value at which it's uh, uh, trading on the basis of uh, hopes and fantasies and a price at which it's trading on the basis of deep fears of worse scenarios. Um, Mean reversion is evident everywhere in finance. Uh, Profit margins mean revert. If your profit margin is high, you're going to attract competitors and your profit margins will come down slowly but surely with that competition. If your profit margins are low, uh, some companies are going to fail and get out of the business or will choose to get out of the business and your margins will improve. Um, uh, Earnings mean revert. Uh, Valuation multiples mean revert. Uh, the Schiller P.E. ratio, which is widely dismissed these days, um, it's dismissed as an aside. It's dismissed every time it suggests caution. <laughs> when it suggests caution, the critics come out of the woodworks and, and explain why it shouldn't work. But in point of fact, it has between a 70 and 80 percent correlation with subsequent 10 year stock market returns. Well, That's literally 70% as valuable to you as an investor as somebody telling you exactly where the stock market's going to be 10 years from now. If somebody said, I'll give you a copy of the Wall Street Journal for 10 years from now, um, but I'm only going to give you the section that shows you what the S&P 500 is. Uh, All the other details you won't see. How much would you pay for that? Well, you should pay about 70% as much just to check the Schiller P.E. ratio. So mean reversion happens in valuation and yields and earnings and everything. And, but it happens slowly. It happens gradually. And so it requires patience. It encourages contrarian investing, which is inherently uncomfortable. You're buying what's newly cheap and whatever is newly cheap got there because there's a plausible, narrative with a distinct possibility of being true for why things are going to get worse before they get better. And you're going to be selling whatever is the most newly beloved assets, which carry a narrative for why these companies are going to take over the world, uh, deliver beyond anyone's wildest dreams, 
The problem is that the market prices those uh, beloved stocks as if that future success is a fait accompli. So it has to achieve that success merely to achieve market returns. It has to do better than those lofty expectations to beat the market. And likewise, the out-of-favor value stocks have to do worse than their bleak fears in order to not beat the market. But the problem is you do have long periods of time when value gets more and more expensive, growth gets less and less expensive, uh, excuse me, other way around. Growth gets more and more expensive, value gets less and less expensive. And as a consequence, uh, value looks like, wow, this has been a really bad idea. No, it's just something getting cheaper. Yeah, I love the comparison, you know, uh, thinking of, you know, value investing as, as buying anything else in, in your real life, whether it's, you know, you're buying a business, uh, it's the corner store, what have you. There's a great Jesse Livermore quote, right? It's a hundred year old quote now, uh, roughly, uh, that, you know, the average investor um, spends less time um, thinking about value or in the markets or even th- doing any kind of analysis in the markets than he does studying, you know, the purchase of a medium priced automobile. Um, and, and I think that's still true today. Uh, were there, were there um, books or anything you said, you know, when you were a kid, you spent a summer studying, were there books or anything that, that really influenced your, your, your thoughts about value? Well, I read all the classics. I read Livermore. I read, um, uh, uh, Ben Graham, both, uh, intelligent investor and, uh, uh, financial, uh, what was it called? Financial analysis or security analysis. Yeah. Security analysis. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, I read, um, uh, McKay's book on bubbles and the list goes on and on. Uh, I also read, um, books. There was a book called the encyclopedia of investing that had about 70 chapters and each chapter had one idea that somebody thought was a great way to invest. And, uh, two thirds of them were nitwit ideas and one third of them were kind of interesting. I've, that's one I've never heard of, but it reminds me of market wizards. One of the reasons I love market wizards is it has, it, you know, we profile so many different investors. There's so many different ways to be successful in the markets, but, uh, um, let's, let's change gears a little bit and get right into your, your methodology. Um, wh- one of the, the most popular interviews that I've done, uh, for this podcast with Steve, Steve Bregman a couple of years ago, um, on the problems with passive investing. And, uh, you know, when, I guess, when did you kind of, um, discover that, you know, passive was really taking off, but there were some real problems that could be fixed, um, and, and not in too complex of a way. Well, from the beginning of my career, I always thought indexing was uh, a great idea with uh, a massive Achilles heel. And that Achilles heel is quite simply that the more expensive an asset is, the more weight you want to have of it, that asset in your portfolio, which just common sense as well as finance theory tells you that your larger holdings in a portfolio are larger because you have a higher return expectation, risk-adjusted return expectation than your smaller holdings. Um, And actually, you can reverse engineer what the implied return expectations are uh, uh, using optimization mathematics. Uh, And you find that, yeah, the the stock that's got a 4% weight has a higher 
implied expected return than the stock that has a 0.4% weight. Uh, well, think about that for a moment. That means that when a stock doubles in price, your return expectation for that stock is higher than it was before it doubled. Why would you do that? And why would you want to own more for more of an asset just because it's become more expensive? Um, that's a massive Achilles heel. I'd long thought it, boy, wouldn't it be fun to just try um, indexing on the basis of sales or on the basis of book value? And I never got around to it. But uh, a friend of mine, uh, George Kane, who uh, built an organization called the Common Fund, um, and who also served on the board of uh, some large public funds, New York State, for instance, uh, he came to me right as the tech bubble was collapsing and, and saying, said, there's got to be a better way. Um, I've seen the organizations where I sit on the board pour massive amounts of money into index funds and buying Cisco when it's 180 times earnings making it your largest single holding merely because it's 180 times earnings. Um, and then look what's happening to those stocks. They're getting crushed and the rest of the market's actually doing fine. This is one of the things that almost nobody has noticed about the aftermath of the tech bubble. Uh, the equally weighted stock market continued to go up for two years. For two years. So the stock market was higher in March, April of 2002 than when the tech bubble burst, if you were equal weighting. Um, then there was a short, sharp six-month bear market even that pulled down even equally weighted portfolios, but by half as much as the overall stock market because the overall stock market was cap-weighted. The other thing that... Um, we found interesting was, uh, well, equal weighting isn't very um, good from a vantage point of capacity and trading costs. You're going to be trading um, uh, Harnish Fager, which was a member of the index at the time, just as actively as ExxonMobil. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I said, why don't we try weighting a portfolio in accordance with fundamental economic footprint of a business? Um, he thought that sounded like an interesting idea. And, and uh, so I uh, dove into it. I just started research affiliates. Uh, I tasked Jason Sue, uh, who was um, uh, my first employee uh, at uh, research affiliates. Uh, uh, he'd been my uh, teaching assistant when I briefly taught at UCLA. And uh, he, was a deep skeptic. He thought this was going to be a waste of time. But he dove into the research. He tested it back to the early 70s, so we had a 30-year history. And just weighting a portfolio by the sales of the business instead of its market cap beat the market, not by 10 or 20 basis points, but by 250 basis points per annum compounded. Just astonishing margin of success. We then got deeper data, went back to 1962, and uh, tested um, uh, the use of weighting in accordance with earnings or with revenues or with gross assets or with book value or with um, number of employees. 
everything we tried added one and a half to two and a half percent per year. Uh, and oh, by the way, um, equal weighting added one and a half percent a year. We suddenly realized that the common denominator was that these didn't cap weight. In fact, they didn't weight in proportion to price at all. The price could go up or down, and you'd be forced to trim when it went up and buy when it went down. So you had a built-in buy-low-sell-high discipline. We realized that the common thread here, the common denominator, was rebalancing and trading against the mean reversion that happens in the market. So when a stock soars and its fundamentals don't, you have to trim it. When a stock tumbles and its fundamentals don't, you have to buy more. Um, the simple mechanistic uh, response to mean reversion meant that when the price moved, because it should have moved, meaning that the underlying fundamentals did change, um, you might be in a position of selling those stocks after they pop. And if it's fair value that's moved, it's not going to hurt you because the fair value already reflects those new expectations. But if the market made a mistake, if the market made an error, pricing the news um, more aggressively than it should, then you're going to get mean reversion back down and selling will have been profitable. So we later did a paper with Harry Markowitz published in 2015. Boy, that one took a long time to get published because it went against uh, conventional efficient markets uh, uh, finance theory. But in any event, uh, this paper simply asked the question, does noise create the size and value effect? And in fact, that's the title of the paper. And what we found was that if the market is 90% efficient, if 90% of all price action is driven by movement in the fair value of a company, and just 10% of all price action in stocks is the market making a mistake, which it subsequently has to correct because the market's constantly looking for pricing errors and trying to fix them. That little 10% of mispricing is enough to create the entire size effect and the entire Fama French value effect, all of it. So that was a revelation. Um, uh, anyway, we decided to publish the idea. We actually launched product. It's such a simple product. Weight companies according to sales or book value or uh, profits or dividends or a blend of the four measures, which is what we started with. Um, that it was trivial to launch uh, uh, the product. We found a kindred spirit in um, Steve Myers at uh, San Diego State Pension, uh, excuse me, uh, South Dakota State Pension Fund. And uh, uh, he popped $100 million into the strategy uh, at, in December of 2004, we published the paper in March of 2005, and we were off and running. Uh, now, one thing that's interesting is if you weight companies by the size of the business, growth stocks trade at premium multiples. You're going to reweight them down to their economic footprint. Value stocks trade cheap relative to the market. You're going to reweight them up to their economic footprint. So inevitably, you always have a stark value tilt 
but it differs from conventional value investing in a very simple way. And that is with conventional value investing, uh, you're cap weighting. So you own half of the market, not the growth stocks, and you cap weighted. You're still going to overweight the overvalued value stocks and underweight the undervalued value stocks. So you're giving up much of your rebalancing alpha. The only rebalancing you get is through what Fama and French called migration, uh, the changing list of names in the portfolio. With fundamental index, you're contra trading against every stock's price movements. So whatever is soaring most, that's what you're trimming. Whatever is tumbling most, that's what you're buying. And so while it has a value tilt, it's a constantly changing value tilt, and you aren't throwing out the growth stocks. They're still in there. So if nothing else, it's clearly a better way to, um, uh, to manage a value strategy than conventional cap-weighted value portfolios. You know, and I and to me, the thing that's most um, interesting about it is is like you know your the concept of value, the way you explained value, it makes sense. Um, it, it makes common sense um, from just a straightforward, very simple understanding. Of course, when I'm investing in the stock market, I want to invest just like I would invest in a regular business, and I'm I'm very value conscious in every area of my life. I should be the value conscious in, in the markets as well. Um, the idea that instead of weighting companies based on their popularity or what have you, let's weight them based on their their economic footprint makes perfect common sense to me. You you um, and then when you contrast that to the to the way that uh, passive investing is done today, yet you, you had a great quote in your recent piece. Um, when considered from an eco- uh, an economy-centric standpoint, capitalization weighting is hardly passive. It is a growth-tilted, momentum-chasing, popularity-weighted index that makes huge active bets relative to today's reality. Um, I don't think many investors, most investors, obviously, who are passively investing today in the traditional index understand this. Can you explain that a little bit better? Sure. Uh, let's do it with a specific example. Let's take Tesla. Tesla today has a market value larger than Ford, larger than GM, larger than uh, Nissan, uh, larger than uh, any auto company in the world except for um, Toyota and, to a small extent, Volkswagen. It's nearly as valuable as Volkswagen. Uh, So tacitly what the market is saying is we believe this company is – going to be such an important part of the future economy of the world that it will produce more um, risk-adjusted run rate profits for the investor than any auto company in the world with the sole exceptions of Volkswagen and uh, Toyota. Now, let's take that at face value and let's assume that's correct. If it's correct, then the stock is fairly priced. And uh, but you're prepaying for that future success from an economy centric standpoint. Cap weighting is making a very big bet that this company will be massively more successful in future growth than any other major auto company in the world. Um, Well, if it's not correct, then you have a comeuppance down the road. Uh, The company has to 
be the third most successful auto company on the planet in terms of future long-term profits in order to just justify the current price, let alone go any higher. So from an economy-centric standpoint, cap weighting is growth tilted to exactly the same extent that fundamental index is value tilted relative to the market. Um, if the market is paying a huge premium for growth, cap weight is hugely growth tilted. And relative to the cap weighted market, value, fundamental index is, has a huge value tilt. That's where we are today, by the way. Uh, the market is paying massive premiums for growth, especially tech-related growth, and uh, paying deep discounts for out-of-favor smokestack companies. And that doesn't mean that the market's wrong. It just means that um, the, the cap-weighted market is making that bet. So I like to think of the cap-weighted market, uh, cap-weighted indexes, as um, studiously mirroring the look and composition of the capital markets. That's what they do. And fundamental index studiously mirrors the look and composition of the macro economy. So you have a market-weighted index and you have an economy-weighted index. Boy, are those two ideas complementary. Yeah, and, and so let's let's talk about what are the uh, the main differences between the cap weighted index and the fundamental index. You know, when you go to a site like Morningstar and you just look at the top holdings in between, you know, uh, the Rafi index and you know cap weighted index, it looks dramatically different. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, you know those differences and where do they pr uh, primarily come from? Sure, sure. Well, you've got some big oil companies. You've got some big um, uh, financial services companies that are out of favor, that are trading cheap, and that the cap-weighted market says, these aren't in our top 10 anymore. They used to be, but they're not anymore. And Fundamental Index says, well, they're still big companies, and if they don't do as badly as the market thinks, then any mean reversion will be profitable. And these... Uh, Fang stocks, apart from Apple and Microsoft, are really speculations on future growth. Apple and Microsoft really are seriously large businesses at this point. So Fundamental Index is basically saying, apart from the well-established tech companies that have a big profit stream, um, a lot of these Fang-type companies are priced to reflect an expectation that they're going to be very big. Well, that might be right. But it's not going to help you make money unless the reality is even better than the market thinks. So why don't we just weight them according to their economic footprint? And if they get bigger, uh, then we'll top them up at a future date uh, at whatever is the then current price. But for now, let's, let's stick with uh, a weight that's well under the market weight. So you do downweight all of the growth stocks and upweight all the value stocks. But... That's not the key driver of performance. If you do a disaggregation of returns, looking at, say, the Fama French value size and, and uh, momentum effects. Of course, Fama and French started with value and size, and momentum was later added by Carhartt and Asnes. But in any event, if you start, if you do a disaggregation of returns, what you find is fundamental index wins about one fourth of its alpha from the value tilt and about three-fourths of its alpha from a long horizon mean reversion. Wow, that's huge. 
we wrote a series of papers back in 2011 and 12 um, in which we looked at an idea known as uh, uh, that we describe as um, uh, clairvoyant value. Let's say you go back in history uh, 50 years and you ask the question, what was IBM worth back in 1969? Well, you can answer that question. You can take the next 50 years of profits and dividend distributions and so forth, discount them back to 1969 and find out what the stock was worth. Uh, You can't do that today. You can't answer the question, what's it worth today? But if you go back historically, what you find is something really fascinating. And that is the market does a brilliant job of distinguishing growth from value. The stocks trading at premium multiples Most of them are worth premium multiples in terms of what actually subsequently happens. Uh, The stocks that are trading at a discount, most of them are worth a discount. There's a 50% correlation between the fair value premium or discount and the actual market price. Cool. The market has a 50% correlation in forecasting future growth. Wonderful. Problem is it overpays. So there's a minus 50% correlation between the valuation multiples that the market pays and the subsequent internal rate of return on investing in the stock. And the way you get plus 50 correlation with subsequent fundamental growth and minus 50 with subsequent price performance is quite simply, you're paying about twice as much of a premium for growth as you should and discounting disappointment about twice as much as you should. So from that perspective, when the market gets stretched like it is today, this seems like a spectacular opportunity to ramp up our value focus. The problem we run into is a really simple one, and that's, that's one of timeline. Uh, do I have high confidence that value will beat growth over the next five to 10 years? Oh my goodness, yes. Uh, do I have high confidence that value will win over the next year? Not so much. 60, 40 odds, maybe. Do I have high confidence over the next month? No, none at all. It's a coin toss. And people really hate it when those coin tosses come up tails a few times in a row. Absolutely. And, you know, that's actually what makes, I I think Meb Faber did a a research piece on this where you have asset classes that perform poorly, no matter how cheap they are, you know, two, three years in a row. Um, they usually do really well after those long stretches of of poor performance. You know what? So when I when I teach uh, in my class here in Bend, uh, you know about the problems with passive and why people should you know look to more of a fundamental index. Um, you know, one of the the ways I, I kind of demonstrate this to them is that. Uh, the indexes don't just passive uh, traditional indexes don't just ignore value. They do the opposite. They buy high, they sell low. Um, and then the number one question I get without fail from students is, well, why shouldn't I just buy a, a value, um, some type of a quantitative value fund? So can you explain the difference between a fundamental index and, a, and a, a, like a value index? It all depends on how you define value. Uh, Cliff Asnes, who's been a critic of fundamental index, uh, says it's just value investing. The weight in a RAFI portfolio is the weight in a cap portfolio divided by the valuation multiple. High multiple stocks are reweighted down, low multiple stocks are reweighted up. Well, 
Yeah, that's true. Absolutely true. The problem is that before RANFI, there were no value strategies or indexes that had this kind of dynamic weighting. They all anchored on cap weighting, and we already talked about why cap weighting is has this enormous Achilles heel. Um, so if you take the market and throw out the growth stocks and just cap weight the value stocks, um, let's define winners and losers based on after the fact 2020 hindsight. The losers are companies that subsequently underperform. The winners are companies that subsequently outperform. Uh, with cap weighting, you're guaranteed that every overvalued stock that's destined to underperform is weighted in your portfolio um, above its fair value weight. And every stock that's destined to outperform is weighted in your portfolio below its fair value weight. So you're overweight all the overvalued and underweight all the undervalued. Now, um, the indexing community has heard that argument uh, for 60 years now, and they dismiss it out of hand saying, that's absolutely true. So what? You can't tell me which stocks are over or undervalued. And they're right. But what if you use a weighting scheme, fundamental index is just one of many, that randomizes the errors? A stock that's destined to outperform may be a growth stock or maybe a value stock. Uh, it's not going to be um, uh, reliably one or the other. And a stock that's destined to underperform could come from both categories. So with fundamental index, you take a stock and whether it's over or undervalued, your weighting is not correlated with the over or undervaluation. As soon as you tie your weight to the price, you're creating a stark correlation between whatever is the error in the price and the weight in the portfolio. So, of course, with, um, uh, with cap-weighted indexation, you're loading up on the overvalued stocks and under-representing the undervalued stocks, even though you don't know which ones they are. With fundamental index, you still don't know which ones they are, but the errors are random, so they cancel. Instead of a systematic drag on performance, it's a systematic boost. Well, those of us who are not quantitative value investors can appreciate that. I think those of us who've bought several value traps uh, and, and been uh, been harmed by those over the years, I think you know to to, to be able to, I guess, limit those in your portfolio systematically um, is a, is a great benefit. Um, let's let's talk about. We kind of, I guess, danced around the topic of the current opportunity in value. You've mentioned it a couple times. Um, I think. In a piece you recently put out, uh, you've suggested that value is uh, as cheap today as it was back in 2000, which is a very rare extreme. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's been out of favor for 12 years. Um, and so you, I guess you would expect uh, that you know, after 12 years of underperformance, um, you would get this type of terrific value in the value space. Um, in the next uh, bear market, <clears throat> uh, you know, do you expect value stocks to perform um, as well as they did from that 2000 to 2002 period where, um, as you said, an equal weight portfolio 
um, didn't really decline at all. Um, do, you, do you expect we might see a similar outcome this time? Well, keep in mind the valuation spread between growth and value at the peak of the tech bubble was the widest ever. Uh, right now, we're looking at the second widest ever. So do I think we're going to see the same kind of outcome? Probably not, but it can still be pretty darned impressive. Um, we went back historically, and this is in the paper that you've seen, uh, and looked at what happens when value beats growth. And of course, the value indexes are beating the cap-weighted market. And RAFI, because it's got a value tilt, is beating the market handily. So if value is beating growth by uh, 3 to 6%, RAFI is beating the market by 4 to 6%. That's cool. If value is beating growth by 6% or more, RAFI is beating the market by 6 to 10%. And you find that at those times, you're actually still beating value most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. In neutral markets, when uh, growth is winning by less than 3% or values winning by less than 3%, fundamental index beats the market between 80 and 90% of the time. That's pretty cool. So where do we get hurt? What's our Achilles heel? Our Achilles heel is value traps and our Achilles heel is when growth is beating value. When growth beats value, what we find, if growth is winning by at least 300 basis points per annum, Rafi is struggling to match the market. Well, that's way better than, than value. Value is not struggling to beat the market. Value is lagging by at least 300 basis points. And what we find is that Rafi uh, performs anywhere from 1% worse than the market to half a percent better in those environments. Well, what's the last five years been? It's been exactly that. Uh, value has underperformed growth by at least 4% a year in the U.S., in EFA, in emerging markets, in the all-world portfolio. Uh, each of the major domains of uh, growth has beat value by at least 4%. And RAFI has actually eked out a gain beating the market um, in developed ex-U.S. and in emerging markets, so EFA and emerging markets. In the U.S., it's had about a 1% shortfall. 1% shortfall when growth is beating value by 4% a year, that's a hurricane force headwind and you're shrugging it off with only a 1% uh, haircut. That's not bad. The aftermath when value underperforms, subsequently it usually comes back. And the aftermath for Rafi is that after struggling and perhaps inflicting a modest haircut on investors, the snapback is huge. Why is that? Because when value is underperforming, we trade into a deeper and deeper value tilt. Value stocks down. Okay, fundamentals aren't down that much. Let's buy more. Down Values down a little more. Let's buy a little more. And so you keep trading into a deeper value tilt while value is underperforming. So when it turns, you have your peak value exposure at the turn. And the result is stupendous outperformance. We saw it in 2008 and 2008. Rafi underperformed the market by 3% in a bear market year. Ouch. That's, that's a nasty hit. Um, market down 37. We were down 40. 
in 2009, because we were trading into a deeper and deeper value tilt, when value snapped back in the middle half of 2009, uh, we beat the market by over 2,000 basis points in six months. Uh, and for the calendar year, beat the market by 1,500 basis points. So you give up 3%, then you add 15. I'll take that any day. A lot of people find the minus three scary. I don't. I've seen this again and again in market after market. Whenever there's a drawdown, what follows is wonderful to behold. And so I love it when we see a drawdown because that's what, what um, uh, think of it as a coiled spring. The spring gets tightly coiled and the snapback is amazing. Yeah, and I love that that systematic part of uh, the Rafi index is that when a stock price grows faster than its fundamentals, you automatically re- rebalance it lower, um, and or you sell some. And when it, when a stock price performs worse than its fundamentals, you're actually you're you're buy, you know forcing yourself to buy some. So to me, that is maybe the greatest difference, um, the simplest difference between the, the indexes that, you know, a, a, a traditional index, market cap weighted index, buys more when the stock price grows faster than its fundamentals and is buying high and selling low. And the Rafi indexes do the exact opposite. Exactly. Um, yeah. So there are, I mean, times, there are times when um, uh, buying what's been a bleak performer uh, hurts you. And those are times when growth is on a roll. We've been... Uh, off and on, we've been in that kind of environment now for 12 years. This is the longest period uh, of value uh, struggling against growth, roughly tying the 1988 to 2000 drawdown. Um, In terms of the magnitude of the drawdown, it's not as bad as during the tech bubble. Uh, In fact, if we launched RAFI uh, in 1994 instead of 2004, I would venture to guess that the uh, tech bubble would have killed the strategy. Um, But be that as it may, you're basically saying uh, whenever a stock soars and its fundamentals don't, you're going to trim it. Whenever it tumbles and the fundamentals don't, you're going to buy it. And these trades will be profitable whenever that price movement turns out to have been a mistake. And it'll be reasonably harmless when the price movement turns out to be legit because a legit price move just means you're at fair value. And it doesn't mean that the stock is priced off for a superior future return. One other uh, very minor nuance, although it doesn't feel minor, is value traps. Um, Bottom of the financial crisis in the March rebalance for Rafi. Three standout stocks, B of A, Citi, and General Motors, were our biggest purchases. Why? Because they'd cratered the most relative to their fundamental economic footprint. All three were big companies. All three had big profit engines until recently. And all three were talked up as potential um, uh, bankruptcies. Uh, lo and behold, roll the clock forward six months. One of the three is dead. Two of the three aren't dead and have tripled. Uh, Rafi took a tiny allocation in City and B of A and said, these companies are about 2% of the U.S. economy each. Rebalance to 
GM, that's about 1% of the economy, rebalanced 1%. The one went to zero. The two plus two went to six plus six. Wow. So the opportunity to win from bargains turns out to utterly dominate the fact that you will lose from uh, value traps. And by the way, just as an aside, this is one avenue in which enhancing the Rafi strategy is actually a pretty fun game. You can introduce uh, value uh, filters without backing away from the fundamental weight and get rid of the, um, uh, the stark anti-quality bias of, uh, of Rafi. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, and, and I guess that, that takes me to uh, um, another topic in, in terms of, I guess, quality. One of the reasons value has suffered in Rafi relative to the broad market is the success of the FANG stocks. You mentioned it before. Microsoft and Apple are massive companies, but, uh, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, or Alphabet, um, you know, are, are not massive parts of the economy relative, I guess, to their, their market cap weightings. Um, you've recently suggested that they're <clears throat> the impressive performance of these winner take all tech companies um, is potentially unsustainable. Uh, I, I guess, why would you, uh, wh- why do you believe that? Well, it's potentially unsustainable um, uh, if these companies don't all produce spectacular future growth um, that is fully in line with and perhaps better than the market's already lofty expectations. So there's the core problem. The market is pricing these companies as if they are going to be massively successful. And some of them perhaps will be. Uh, I love to go back to the tech bubble and ask, well, what happened the last time we saw this? The last time we saw this, if you look at the 10 largest market cap tech stocks. Amazon wasn't on the list, not of the top 10. It had already faltered. Apple wasn't on the list. Um, It was thought in the year 2000 to be potentially a death's door. And so what you find is that the 10 largest market cap tech stocks in the year 2000, one of them has beat the market since then, Microsoft. How much did it beat the market? by 1% a year. That's all. Nine of them underperformed, two disappeared entirely. Uh, of, the, of the seven that didn't disappear, uh, three produced positive returns, four produced negative returns. The average for the top 10 market cap tech stocks in year 2000 is a minus 2% return per annum for the last 19 years. So uh, do I want to believe that I can choose which of the fan mag, we call it fan mag because we throw Apple and Microsoft in to the roster because they really are popular beloved tech stocks. But um, do I really think I can choose which of the fan mag stocks is actually going to be the one stock that's going to beat the already lofty expectations that are embedded in the price? In fact, you can go back historically. We looked at the 10 largest market cap companies in 1980, uh, uh, energy-dominated bubble, 1990, Japan-dominated bubble, uh, 2000s, the tech bubble, 2010. And we've asked the question, how 
how many of the top 10 names are still on the list 10 years later? The answer historically has been two in each of those decades. Two stocks survive on the top 10 list. That means eight out of 10 underperformed the market badly enough to fall off the top 10 list. The two survivors might be higher or lower on the list than they were before. So tacitly, that means one out of 10 is likely to actually have been a winner. Um, Cap weighting, those are your 10 largest holdings. Do I want that as my 10 largest holdings to have one stock that's likely to beat the market in the next 10 years? I don't think so. You know, it's it's interesting that, uh, yeah, these companies have all, you know, it, it's overweighting a group of companies that uh, you can almost guarantee at least several of them have st- seen their stock prices outstrip the fundamentals, <laughs> but you're still betting heavily on, on the group. Um, it, it, it's fascinating. I've got one more question for you, Rob. Um, and it's totally different topic. I, you've spent a great deal of time explaining a lot of this stuff, and I really appreciate it. I think my audience is really going to love this. But to change gears completely, I read somewhere else that you are an avid motorcyclist. <laughs> is, there well, anything, uh, uh, is there anything? Is there anything? I was an avid motorcyclist. At age sixty-five, I'm uh, I'm an occasional motorcyclist. I don't uh, trust my reflexes like I used to. Well, I, I can sympathize. I, I had a motorcycle here in Bend, and then they put in about two dozen roundabouts, and I never felt safe riding around them, so I sold my <laughs> motorcycle. But um, was there anything from riding or collecting bikes or anything that uh, has helped, I guess, inform your investment process? You know, perhaps the other way around. Um, the bikes that I collect tend to be fastest of their era, but I'm a value investor. And so I like (laughs) buying fastest of their era bikes, but I don't like um, paying an absolute fortune for them. And so when I see a bike come on the market, uh, collecting motorcycles is so much cheaper than collecting cars. I think there've been probably three or four motorcycles ever in history that sold for a million bucks. And there have been dozens of cars that have sold for $10 million. So um, when I see a bike that I think is rare enough, fast enough, and interesting enough in his, its history to be worth a quarter million, and I find I can buy it for $150,000, i am thrilled. If I find I can buy it for a half a million, no, I'll just let somebody else buy it. So... So my style of investing also informs my collecting, but I, I would have to say humbly that I have a pretty darn cool collection. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's neat. Once a value investor, always a value investor, I guess. What, uh, where can people keep up with your ideas, Rob, and, and uh, I guess learn more about um, the Rafi indexes? Basically, if they go to our website, which is researchaffiliates.com, uh, they can get access to all of our papers. They can put, put themselves on distribution list for all of our research. Alternatively, if they email me uh, at arnot, A-R-N-O-T-T, at R-A-L-L-C dot com, um, uh, I can make sure that they get put on um, whichever list they want to be on. And I can also answer questions. So if, if any of your uh, viewers and readers have questions, uh, 
if I get hundreds of questions, I may outsource them to my colleagues. But if I get a, a dozen or two questions, that's easy. Terrific. And I'll link some of the, the um, uh, papers and whatnot uh, at, at the website, federalreport.com, so people can easily access, access them straight away. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I think my audience is just going to absolutely eat this up. And I hope I can uh, convince you to come back on a little bit and talk more about value maybe a year or two from now and, and uh, kind of see where, we're, see where we're at. Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.